Well, this morning's text will bring us to really a transitional point in the story of the life of Jesus Christ. What we're going to see in this passage, however, that the immediate focus of this text is not on Jesus per se, but rather it is on John the Baptist, who is the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the last stand of the great prophet of God, John the Baptist, and he functions as a precursor to see the story and the suffering of Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, which follows the resurrection. And yet the text isn't really just about the facts only. It does give us insight into the mind of God regarding the true nature of prophetic witness and the outcome of all who will choose to live godly in Christ Jesus. And so if you have your copy of Scripture, turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. I think sometimes it's tempting for us when we read the Gospels uh, to think that, that when they wrote these texts, they simply took a bunch of stories and sort of threw them together and that became the Gospel narrative. But really the, the construction of the, the Gospels, especially Matthew's Gospel, is far more intentional than that. And even though John at the end of his Gospel in chapter 21 says that if we were to write down all the things that Jesus said and did while he was on earth that all the volumes, all the books of the world could not contain everything he did and said. And so these gospel accounts are really just a a pared down, uh, edited down version, a representative account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's what is written down for our benefit, what we need to know, even though we understand that Jesus said and did far more than we could ever uh, understand. But up to this point, we have seen the tension building in the story of the life of Jesus, the tension is building as opposition to the message and the ministry of Jesus is also intensifying. He has more and more critics that are coming at him, more people trying to attack him, people even trying to kill him already. Even in the parables, he warns of false conversion and and antagonism. Even in the parables are laced with this opposition. Final judgment, when the angels come forth and separate the wicked from among the righteous... And so in the beginning of chapter 14, with the opposition on the rise, and the story of the death of John the Baptist is really punctuating this narrative. Yet it's interesting that chapter 14 is telling really how Matthew organizes these events. It's amazing that all this sorts to fits together. There's a reason that John, or excuse me, Matthew records the death of John when he does, how he does. It all fits into the story, and we're going to see this together. So Matthew chapter 14, we're going to start in chapter 14 verse 1, and look at the first 13 or so verses. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist." Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner desk. He sent and John, had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. 
and brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. We're going to stop right there. So the account here is of the demise of John the Baptist, and really this is bookended by a couple of comments in verse 1 and verse 13. See, most of this story appears in Matthew's Gospel as a flashback. So even though we're in the 21st century reading a story that took place 20 centuries ago, uh, that story is happening, but then the author of that story is then flashing back in time as well. So there's a little bit of a time jump here, but I think you can follow along. It begins in real time. Verses 1 and 2 brings us right into the, to the heart of the story. It takes place in the palace of King Herod. Now, Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, which is the northern region of Israel. And he's going all throughout the region, and he's teaching the crowds. He's healing the sick. He's performing miracles. And all of this begins to create buzz to the point where Herod the Tetrarch begins to hear about what he's doing. And the question is posed then, okay, well, who is Herod the Tetrarch? Well, the Herod dynasty began with Herod the Great, who ruled as regional governor over Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. Now, I say governor because in Israel at the time, the Roman prov- Israel was a Roman province. And so Herod was ruling as a king, but he was under the authority of the Caesar. He really wasn't truly a king. But yet he still wielded substantial power in the region. Now, Herod the Great, if you know the story, uh, he was the one who persecuted all and, and killed all the infants when Jesus was first born. That's the same man. He was not Israelite. He was actually an Idumean king. He was, he was Edomite. So he was actually opposed. His people were opposed to the, the Israelites as well. And he had many wives and many children by those wives. And the son of his fourth wife was named Herod Antipas. And upon the death of his father, the territory of Herod the Great was divided up into many different portions amongst his sons. And the word tetrarch literally means of the fourth part, of the fourth part. So the idea being that Herod Antipas would receive as a tetrarch a fourth of the kingdom. We know that that was sort of uh, just a name because he received about a third of the kingdom, but the word tetrarch became synonymous with a lower ruler. There was an ethnarch, which was the higher ruler, but a tetrarch was of a smaller region, a sub-ruler who governed a, a smaller portion of the territory. And so Herod the tetrarch, the son of Herod the Great, ruled as so-called king over the region of Galilee in the north and Perea, which is where Jesus is ministering. Therefore, the ministry of Jesus at this time is falling under his jurisdiction. So Herod hears about this ministry and responds with panic. Look at verse 2. He hears about Jesus and verse 2 says, He said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has arisen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, at first, it seems a bit odd that he's saying these things. And certainly, without context, this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense at all. It's odd, first of all, because we don't ever see John the Baptist performing any signs or wonders or miracles. You read all the Gospel accounts, anytime John the Baptist is mentioned, he's preaching, he's baptizing, but he's not doing any miracles. He's not healing the sick and raising the dead and doing anything like that. And so it doesn't make sense that he's equating Jesus' power with John's ministry. It doesn't really align. And so we don't really know what the the deal is here, but whatever is happening, Herod is panicked about this ministry. And second of all, we don't really see, or we don't see, 
an occurrence of reincarnation in the Bible. Not even with John, who was said to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, Jesus never says that John is Elijah, but he's coming in the prophetic office of Elijah. But we don't see reincarnation. That's not a a Christian doctrine. People have souls and they die and go to be with the Lord or they go to hell or whatever it's going to be. But we don't see John coming back as Jesus. That doesn't make any sense at all. And so that's not really what's going on. But Herod's reaction is still strange to us. It's strange. And it's, I think it's why Matthew flashes back, and he goes back about a year. So verse 1 and verse 2 are happening in real time with the context of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is ministering. But then Matthew pushes the pause button, and we're, the, the reader is supposed to ask, well, why is Herod flipping out like this? Why is he so bothered by the ministry of Jesus? Matthew in verse 3 goes back a year and is about to tell us why Herod is having such a hard time with Jesus. And so from verses 3 all the way to verse 11, and really into verse 12, this is all flashback, and so it's going to help us understand why this is such a big deal, and why Herod would be so exercised about another prophet ministering in Galilee. Now, Herod Antipas had been ruling as the Tetrarch since his father's death in around 4 AD, which means that he was approaching his third decade in the reign of Galilee. Now, he was known to be a corrupt and wicked man. He was always looking for the next thing to tickle his fancy, whether it was a building project or tearing this thing down or going after this army or whatever it's going to be. Now, we don't know the events surrounding John's audience before Herod, but we know that at some point, at some point, John the Baptist has an opportunity to go and speak to the Tetrarch who's over the region of Galilee. He somehow gets an audience with King Herod. And what does John say when he finally meets the wicked king? Well, he does what all good prophets do. He calls him to repentance. He preaches judgment against this king for his wickedness. John blasts Herod repeatedly for his public sins, after which Herod arrests him and put him into prison. And so Matthew recounts this event, verses 3 and 4. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias the wife of his brother Philip. And so now, verse 4 is where we get to the heart of the matter. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. What's going on here? All right, folks, buckle up. I'm going to get into some, some genealogy here, okay? Herod the Great had several sons by many different wives. William Hendrickson, who's a New Testament scholar, has traced no less than seven sons from five wives. That's Herod Antipas, or Herod the Great. Now, Herod Antipas was married to the daughter of a, of a Nabataean king named Aretas. However, on a visit to, vil- to visit his half-brother Philip, so Herod Antipas goes to visit his half-brother Philip. Once he gets to his place, he meets his wife, Herodias, and he becomes smitten with his brother's wife, and she becomes smitten with him. And so now they have this sort of underlying romance kindling. Now, this is already a bad situation because Herodias is the daughter of Aristobulus, who is Herod and Philip's other half-brother. Remember, there's five brothers, between, or seven kids between five moms. So now these are all half-brothers of each other. So Aristobulus' daughter marries his half-brother Philip, and then his half-brother Herod falls in love with her. Make sense? It's weird. It's so weird. But Philip is already married to his niece, and now... She was in love with her half-uncle Herod, Antipas. 
So what is Herod to do? What, what does any wicked king do when he has something he wants that he can't have? Well, he moves mountains to get it. That's what he does. He divorces his wife, the Nabataean princess, and he marries his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Now, this action sets off a whole firestorm in the kingdom. Herod's wife then goes back to her father, Aretas, and tells him what happens. And so he responds by going after Herod and brings him to war. And goes after him, actually defeats him in battle. And in the course of the battle of being defeated, the Romans actually have to step in and squash the whole thing before it becomes a huge bloodbath. So the only reason Herod is still alive is because the Romans saved his skin. Okay? But that's how tense this whole thing is. Herod is already in hot water because both the Nabataeans are mad at him and the Romans because they had to jump in. And most likely Philip's not too happy with him either. And most likely Aristobulus is not happy with the both of them. So the last thing that Herod or Herodias would want to hear from anybody coming into the court is for a, a prophet with long hair, weird-looking clothing, strange diet. They don't want to hear anybody coming in and telling them what to do with their marriage. Make sense? That's, a, that's the worst thing you could possibly say. In fact, you probably know that the, the attendants probably said to John, okay, whatever you do, don't talk about the marriage, okay? All right, go. So what does John do? He goes in and says, you're not allowed to have her as a wife. Oh, my goodness, John, what are you doing? But that's what he does. He says, it's not lawful for you to be married to her. He calls them out for their sin. But verse 4 tells us that John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now there's a couple different levels to this whole thing. On one level, Herod was most likely divorced from his first wife illegally, so it's most likely a disobedience of the law of Moses. But scholars are not really sure if that... I mean, it's possible that she could have given him grounds for divorce. It's possible. But the scholars generally agree that the most egregious sin to the whole thing is that Herod has committed incest. He's married his brother's wife. He's having sexual relations with a family member. That's wrong. In fact, God has commanded the Israelites in Leviticus 18.16, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife... It is your brother's nakedness. Furthermore, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 21. It intensifies the command. The Bible says, if there's a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. It is abhorrent. He says, and he has uncovered his brother's nakedness, and they will be childless. And so what Herod is doing in the eyes of the Lord is abhorrent. The Bible says it is abhorrent. And John the Baptist comes in to tell him to repent. This leads us into a discussion of the role of the church in the prophetic witness to the world. Acts 1.8 tells us, Jesus tells the disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even the most remotest parts of the world. And so primarily this witness that we all carry before us is that of gospel witness. We are to testify about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But truly, the lordship of Christ bleeds into all areas of life. It, it covers personal, social, cultural, political, global. I mean, the reign of Christ is, is over all things. Now, you can get into the different times of the kingdom and how much dominion does Christ have, that he's exerting currently, all that kind of thing. But the bottom line is that God is God over all, and when it comes to matters of government, 
of government. Romans 13 says that government is a minister of God for good behavior. Government is a minister of God for good behavior. In other words, government exists to restrain evil and promote justice and righteousness for the sake of peace and human flourishing. That's the purpose of government. The purpose of government is not to pass programs, to play fast and loose with our money. That's not the purpose. The purpose of government is to restrain the wicked and reward the righteous and create a peaceful society so we can all flourish. That is God's design for government. And Scripture warns believers about overstepping the bounds with regards to government. We are to be subject to those who are in power over us. And so that command stays and rests on the church. I always get a little bit nervous when I see believers popping off and really going after their government leaders uh, too far. I think you can take that too far to the point where you're now in sin because you're, you're undermining the submission that God has told you to maintain. However, that being said, government is a minister of God for good behavior. R.C. Sproul says it this way, the church is to act as the conscience of the state and the culture. So even though government is in submission to God, we as the body of believers in this world, as those who have the mind of Christ and know God's revealed will, it is our job to tell the culture, to tell the world what is right and what is wrong. We bear witness to the truth. And so when the government comes along and says, this is allowable, this is good, this is right, and God says it's abhorrent, we stand up and we say, with all due respect, what you're doing is abhorrent and wrong and sinful, and you need to repent. And then they go and kill a bunch of us, and that's fine. But that's the, that's the role of the church. We are the conscience of the world, because God has given us that responsibility. We know right from wrong. We know godliness from sinfulness. We know virtue from wickedness. Now again, I believe it's our responsibility to, to wield that wisely, wisely. Be very, very careful when you go and use your voice in uh, opposition to the governing authorities. We aren't the sin police. After all, the Spirit's job is to convict the world in John chapter 16. But I believe there are times when the church must exercise its prophetic voice and call a culture to repentance. When a nation kills the unborn, we speak and we say that's wrong. It is detestable, it is abhorrent, and God hates it. That's wrong. When, when a nation mutilates its own children, that's wrong. That's sinful. Or advocates for sexual immorality, that's wrong. Or wages war on the family, woe to you, that's wrong. When it tries to subvert the ministry of the church, we stand up and we say, you can't do that. That's wrong. Now, when we subject ourselves to government, that's our prerogative. But when government tells us we cannot minister, we can't meet, we can't worship, no, you can't. You can't say that. That's wrong. And we use our voice that way, whatever the cost. However, we respond with clarity, with conviction, with godliness, with wisdom, and with humility. That is our charge, beloved. And that's why when we see John the Baptist do this, it is a model for us. We call all people to repent in submission before God Almighty. He is the Lord of all creation. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing here. But the question then is, okay, well, but why Herod? Herod had a reputation for being a, an immoral, nasty, wicked guy. I mean, is, is Herod really going to listen to you? Why is John going after Herod? After all, who cares if a, a wicked pagan king engages in an immoral relationship with someone who's not his wife? 
I mean, after all, he's not a pastor. I mean, why, why go after this guy? Yet a, a ruler over God's people is meant to be an example. That's the thing. And Israel was not just any old nation. Israel was full of God's chosen people who were supposed to be witnesses to the entire world. Remember, he promised Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that you will be a blessing to the whole world. The nations of the whole world will be blessed because of you. And so these chosen people, the the people of God who love God and believed in God, they're subjected to the law of God. And so when a ruler over this people sins publicly and egregiously, they're supposed to be following his example on some level, aren't they? And yet when he sins, he is setting an example for everybody in all of Israel, certainly all of Galilee, what is right and what is wrong. And so when John sees a leader of God's people caught in an egregious sin, he goes right into the palace and tells them to repent. What you're doing is wrong. It's wrong. Repent for the forgiveness of sins. And so that's what he calls them to, to repent. He said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And the Greek verb here is in the imperfect tense, which means he didn't just say it once. He said it over and over again. He had been saying to him. Every time he sees Herod, he says, it's not lawful. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Herod, it's not lawful. You're wrong. You're in sin. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. To the point where it just been ringing in his ears. But what's Herod to do? What is he going to do? Look at verse 5. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. Oh, now we have, it gets really complicated now. Now we're worried about the people that are in his actual district. Mark 6.20 also brings some perspective. Mark 6.20 says that Herod did want to kill John, but he kept him protected because... Mark records that he knew he was a righteous man. Even though Herod doesn't agree with anything that's coming out of his mouth, even though Herod in his sinful rebellion wants to put him to death, he's scared to do it. Because he knows that John is a righteous and holy man, and he knows that the crowds know that he's a prophet of God. So even though he's superstitious, he knows he can't do anything with this guy. What do you do with a prophet? John manifested godly character. That's why John is able to go and say what he says. He's not not just popping off and being political. John is a holy, godly, righteous man who is upright in his character. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 11.11 says that John was the greatest man ever born to a woman. Now, certainly that has to do with his function, the fact that he's the forerunner of the Messiah, but it's no less a, a, a commentary on his character. John was a righteous man. He was a devout man. He was a godly man. And whenever he spoke the words of God, people feared, and rightly so. So what does Herod do? Well, he arrests him. And he keeps him safe from harm because he's scared to harm an obvious man of God, but yet he still sticks him in the dungeon. And we think that at this point in the story, he had been in the dungeon for the better part of a year. And so I don't want to listen to him. I can't kill him. I'm just going to stick him in the pit in the ground and hide him out and I don't have to listen to him anymore and he doesn't do any more damage and I'll just, I'll just stick him there until I figure out what to do with him. That's his plan. However, Herodias, his wife, was not as timid as he was. She wanted John dead. Flat, cold. Now, we may be able to speculate that she expressed this desire to Herod at some point, but he probably shut her down. 
I can't kill him, Herodias, because he's a prophet. I can't kill him because he's a righteous man. What do you want me to do? She would have been pushing and pushing and pushing. But now her opportunity comes to do away with the prophet. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 notes the event of Herod's birthday. Herod's birthday. Now, birthday parties, in terms of how this is being done, was not really a Jewish custom. It's more of a pagan thing at that time. Historians are careful to note the immoral nature of a lot of these parties. They'd oftentimes become drunken orgies, really, is what they were. People would get together and just live lasciviously and do whatever they felt like doing in the moment. There's no reason to doubt that Herod's party was just as debauched. And who was in attendance? Who goes to a party like this? Mark tells us that the party mostly included the lords of the land, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. So Herod brings the who's who of Galilee, brings them all to his palace, and throws a big old party for himself. That's what rulers do. They throw big, huge parties for themselves. This was a godless, aristocratic, drunken party. That's what this was. Further, it was not uncommon for these parties to bring in slave girls to come and dance seductively for the men that were at these parties. But at Herod's party, this guest was somebody that was highly unexpected. It says here, the daughter of his own wife Herodias comes in to dance for them. Now Matthew doesn't record her name, but Jewish historian Josephus does. It tells us that her name was Salome, and she was likely a teenager. And what would have repulsed Queen Vashti in the book of Esther to dance in front of her husband's friends, Salome did. She comes in and she dances before Herod and before the entire room. She danced before the men, and we infer that this seductivity was so, uh, so grotesque that it actually pleased Herod. Now we know from studying the language here that the word pleased is euphemistic for aroused. So whatever happens here, Herod, the wicked king, he's already dispossessed toward uh, adultery and incest, and now he's going to fancy this girl in a, a fleshly stupor, and he's going to do something very, very foolish. He's not thinking with his right mind here. Verse 7 After she does this, after she dances for him and for all of his friends, verse 7 says, He promised with an oath to give her whatever she wanted. Typical of a drunken fool. Mark adds that he actually includes, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Whatever you want, I'll give it to you. That's what he says. And now the trap is set. Now this stupid fool is caught in his own trap. At this point, we realize that this was all a scheme by Herodias to kill John the Baptist. Look at verse 8. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Well, now Herod's caught. What does he do? What does he do? If he says no, he's going to look like a soft king who can't do anything. He, he's, now a, he's a sucker for John. He can't do anything. If he says no, he's going to look like a liar. He's going to look impotent in terms of his power, in front of all of his friends, in front of everything else. So verse 9, although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths, for whatever they are worth, and because of his dinner guests. I can't look foolish in front of all my guests now. I've already said what I'm supposed to do here. I, I, I'm stuck. 
And so that's what he does. The text says that Herod was grieved. Literally, the word means aghast or stricken with grief. Now he knows he's in trouble. We know from verses, verse 2, he's already a superstitious guy. This is exactly what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to put him to death because I don't know what's going to happen. But now I have to do it. What am I going to do? That's all that really, Herod really cares about. He doesn't care about John. Not like he's personally connected to him. But he's terrified. He doesn't want to kill a prophet of God. And more than this, he's about to kill the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He should be scared. He should be shaken in his boots. Verse 10. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. We know that Herod was keeping John in a place called Macarius. That's a palace itself that uh, has a dungeon below it. So above the, in the palace, that's where Herod would have had his party. And so right below the party was the dungeon that John had been chained in for a year. And scholars and archaeologists have gone to the places like this and have seen just the, the, uh, the wretched conditions that these would have been in. But as soon as he gives the order, the executioner goes downstairs and beheads and decapitates John the Baptist. And then verse 11, And his head was brought on a platter and given to this girl, and she brought it to her mother. Terrible thing. Terrible thing. Not only is Herod and his wife Herodias caught up in this grotesque sin, not only are they now have blood on their hands and have killed somebody, this girl Salome, who's maybe 14, 15 years old, has, has given her body over and now she's accomplice to murder, The whole thing is atrocious, absolutely atrocious. But this is the sinful world that we've walked into. A few words about the beheading of John. This execution, without a trial, was against Jewish law. So already Herod has broken God's law. Because John hasn't been tried yet, nothing's happened. He just acts as a petty tyrant and just kills people for whatever he wants to do. Furthermore, beheading was not a sanctioned form of punishment in the Old Testament. So he's breaking God's law again by doing that. So he's breaking law after law after law with no regard. Typical of tyrants and despots. And so Herodias gets John's head as a trophy. And so ends that story. But then we see verse 12. His disciples, meaning John's disciples, they came and they took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus. This would have been awful. This would have been awful for them. These men had been following John as, as students for several years. And even Jesus' disciples, several of them were John's disciples at first. This would have been a very sad time. They'd followed him for a long time. He had preached repentance of sins to them, and they had repented. He had preached baptism. They had been baptized. He had pointed them to the Messiah. John the Baptist is the one who when he sees Jesus coming, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the disciples would have been pointed to Jesus. John was not about himself. John's ministry didn't exist for John. John's ministry existed for Jesus. So that's who John was. He was an upright, righteous man who pointed people to Christ. And so they would have followed John and they would have come to know Jesus because of John. And now this teacher, this beloved teacher, is gone. In the face of godless leaders, he stood for righteousness 
and for truth. He was a, a righteous man. Not a perfect man. He was still a sinner just like the rest of us. But he was a righteous man. And now he was gone. And now they would mourn. And once they buried his body, they went to Jesus and told him the news. Well, how did Jesus respond? Well, we don't actually know. We don't really know what Jesus said to them. But we can imagine that he too was grieved. Jesus and John were related. They were, we believe they were cousins or second cousins. But they were connected to each other. Their mothers knew each other. And John was grieved. Excuse me, Jesus was grieved at the death of John. And so verse 13 actually snaps us back into the timeline. Snaps us back in. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And at this point we start to get into the, to the modern narrative of, of Matthew's Gospel here. Herod's superstitious paranoia when he hears about the ministry of Jesus. Verses 1 and 2, go back to this again. Verse 1 and 2. At that time, again, snapping back into real time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead and that's why miraculous powers are being done or, or at work in him. What is Herod's intention? What is Herod's intention toward Jesus? We know that Herod has already killed John the Baptist. But what is Herod looking for? We know that much later in the story, and we'll get, we're going to get to this when we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, during Passion Week, Herod finally meets up with Jesus and is, frankly, thoroughly unimpressed. He asks Jesus, Jesus questions, and Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't do any miracles for him. He doesn't even talk to him. And so Herod doesn't know what to do. He just sends him back to Pilate. But why? Why doesn't Jesus respond to Herod at all? Why doesn't he do this? Because he doesn't need to. At this point, Luke 13.31 records that some Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, Herod wants to kill you. That's likely Herod's paranoid, maniacal rage. He wants to get rid of you. You should do something. But how does Jesus respond to the Pharisees when they say that to him? Luke 13.32, Jesus tells the Pharisees, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day until I reach my goal. In other words, Herod can say and do whatever he wants to, but I'm going to continue my ministry until it's accomplished. I don't care what Herod thinks of me. So you go tell that fox to leave me alone. Earthly rulers exist to serve the purposes of God. But when they step out of line, God chastens them. And God will chasten every ruler who is not in subjection to Christ. And so even today, we worry about what's going on in the world, right? Not just in our own country. Every single country seems to be filled, chock-a-block full with wicked rulers. And so we say what's true. We stand for righteousness. But don't you think that God has the prerogative to deal with these wicked rulers? You better believe He does. And He will. And Jesus is speaking through time. You go tell those foxes that they can do whatever they want, but I will do my will. And Jesus will come. And He will judge. And He will redeem. He is redeeming. And He will reconcile all things to Himself. Jesus Christ is Lord over all. It doesn't matter what anybody says. And so, yes, we have to be careful with how we present ourselves to the world, but have full confidence in Christ, beloved, that Christ is Lord. 
And all things belong to Him. And so we can, in clear conscience, be honest, be godly, but be honest about what's right and wrong. You don't have to be afraid of people around you. You don't have to be afraid about the praise of men or the criticism of other people. No matter what we say, it seems, these days, there's going to be opposition. Let it happen. Let it happen. Don't go looking for a fight. But when you're called to give an account of what you believe and what's true, be honest before God. Be honest about your faith. Be honest about right and wrong. The Lord rebuked Herod for being a wicked king. And He will rebuke every leader until He comes. What does this account of John the Baptist, what does this accomplish for us in the course of the narrative? What does this teach us? I think it teaches us several things. Number one, it demonstrates the truth of 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Beloved, you will be persecuted for your faith. Now, maybe it won't be hauling you out into the Colosseum and feed you to the lions. It won't be that. But it will be something else. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Don't worry about if it's going to happen. Prepare your heart and honor the Lord and trust the Lord that when it does happen, He'll give you the courage and the temerity to deal with it. He'll give you grace. Number two, the story also functions to heighten the tension. It serves here in the course of the Gospel narrative as a somber reminder. The death of John, it's a precursor to the coming death of Christ. This is the first time that somebody really big in the movement dies. It sort of wakens us up. This isn't just people getting angry about Jesus' words. This is a wicked ruler killing a prophet of God in the New Testament. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet, and here's where he dies. And so it intensifies, and it gives a sober reminder that death is coming for Christ. And death is coming for all the apostles. And death is coming for all of us. Number three, it also models for us courage to face opposition. Courage to face opposition. Consider this. John the Baptist lost his head because he maintained a biblical view of marriage 2,000 years ago. So when you maintain a biblical view of marriage, you'll lose your head in some form. People will go after you. You maintain a biblical view about sexuality, gender, whatever it is. You talk about right and wrong. What is a boy? What is a girl? These are very simple things. But yet you say the truth of the Word of God, that God made them male and female, Scripture itself, you can't say that in culture. Who cares? You be honest before God. You tell the truth and know that you're doing so in a line of godly men and women. Because in the end, God is the one you have to answer to. God is the judge. And God will vindicate the righteous. And so what is our calling, beloved? Is our calling to become political advocates and go on social media and blast our enemies? No. No. That is not our call. But our call is to know and believe the Gospel. Our call is to to live an obedient, godly life. Manifest godly character. Our call is to bear witness to Christ and what He's done for us, the grace He's shown to us in our lives. And the call is to stand firm for God's truth. 
Because the world, they will ask you. They will talk to you. They will attack you. And so you are to stand firm. Again, that's a defensive posture. The armor of God, all of that is defensive. The only offensive weapon in the armor of God is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And you wield that carefully. Why do I bring us to this point, beloved? Well, because as time marches on and culture becomes increasingly hostile, you can take comfort and know that God is with us. God is with us. And if you've been redeemed, if you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, you belong to Him. You're in the palm of His hand. You're cherished and you're beloved of God. And He will guard you. He'll protect you. And He will reward you for standing firm for your faith. And so stand firm. Don't be afraid. Don't antagonize. Be submissive. But there are times when we are called to give a prophetic voice to this world. And when that time shows up and we have opportunity, we do it with truthfulness, with boldness, and with godly sincerity. Calling all people, all places to repent. This isn't just about judgment. It's about calling people to repent. To turn from your sins. If you've been living your life away from God in rebellion to Him, thumbing your nose at Him, there's opportunity for you to repent, to turn from your sins, forsake your sins, and put your faith in God through Christ and trust in Him, knowing that He gave His life as a ransom for you to pay the penalty for you so that you don't have to receive judgment. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for sins. Trust Him. Believe His promises. Turn from your sins. Believe in Christ and you'll have life. Not just peace and abundant life on this planet in terms of your peace and your standing with God, but also a life in the future to come. God is so gracious and so merciful to grant us everlasting life. But we are His witnesses. And so were the the apostles. They were His witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, all over the world. And we are Christ's witnesses here, right in Gilmanton, wherever you live. We are His witnesses to the truth. The truth that God is a God who saves and forgives and redeems and loves. All praise and all glory belong to our great God and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for John the Baptist who died valiantly, not with a sword in his hand, but handcuffed to a wall, doubled over and beheaded. And Lord, we say valiantly because he died because he honored You. He stood for truth. He didn't apologize. He was righteous. He had godly character. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be a model to us. That in all the ways that John the Baptist followed Christ, that we would follow in his example. But Father, you know preeminently that our true example is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Lord Jesus, you are the perfect God-man. You are the sovereign Lord. And we, we look to you and, and we see how did, how did you speak when you were here? What did you say? How did you live? What did you do? And what do you say to us now? What do you expect of us now? We know that you expect us and command us to believe the Gospel, to obey the Gospel, to be submissive to you, and to be honest before the outside world. 
Lord, to trust You, to love You, to submit ourselves to You. And Spirit of God, we know that because of Your ministry, we have the ability to do so. We're reminded of the apostles in the early chapters of Acts who stood fervently and and boldly, even though they were whipped to the very inch of their life, they stood firm for You. And they rejoiced to suffer for Your name. And Lord, I pray that we would not be timid when suffering comes, not because of our sin, not because of our egotism, but when suffering comes because of our faithfulness to You. Help us to be honest before a watching world. Help us to be honest in love, not simply looking down our nose at anyone, but but to love them enough to be honest and try to win them to the truth. God, that You would redeem and save countless people within our grasp, that You would reconcile sinners to God, that You would bring them to Yourself and use us to do so. Humble us, O Lord. Empower us to be godly and to be truthful. And Lord, may we ever bring You honor and glory from now to the very last day that we draw our final breath. We praise You, O Lord God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We do so all in Your name. Amen.